In July 2020, tens of thousands of passionate and committed people from around the globe will convene in San Francisco and Oakland at the 23rd International AIDS Conference. This gathering among the world's largest conferences will happen during a critical year when global goals for the fight against HIV AIDS come due. In 2020, the conference comes back to sacred ground in the Bay Area, a front line in the fight against HIV after 30 years. In this podcast, we'll be talking to a diversity of inspiring guests. They have been and remain at the very forefront of the ongoing fight against HIV AIDS, both at home and abroad. In this episode, I speak with Mark Haywood, former executive director and co-founder of Section 27, a public interest law center in South Africa that seeks to achieve substantive equality and social justice. He's also co-founder of the Treatment Action Campaign in South Africa. And today, he leads a new initiative, the Maverick Citizen, part of the Daily Maverick in South Africa, an online journal. For decades, Mark has been at the forefront of the fight against HIV-AIDS in South Africa. Today, we'll be discussing how he got involved in advocacy, whether advocacy and activism still matter, and what he sees as the biggest obstacles and opportunities for engagement. I'm joined today by Mark Haywood. Thank you for joining us today. We're we're reaching out to people like yourself to try to visit the question, where is the HIV advocacy world today? And obviously, in your case, we're talking with special reference to South Africa, but not exclusively. And does it still matter? Perhaps we could just start with that question, offer us some of your broad thoughts. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you very much for ha- having me, and thank you for uh, raising this very important question and, and, and topic. You know, I think the answer to the question, does AIDS activism and advocacy still matter, is 150% yes. In fact, it may matter now more than it did 10 or 15 years ago. I think that we're in a critical stage of the HIV epidemic. You know, the the HIV epidemic has gone through phases, and often each phase and the response in each phase has been driven by activists and by people living with HIV. And, you know, we're now in a phase, I think, of declining political commitment uh, towards HIV, both to prevention and to treatment. There's still a lot of lip service paid, but I don't measure commitment by hot air. Uh, I measure commitment by dollars and in South Africa's case, rands and cents and by the systems that are put in place, by the willingness of politicians and governments to tackle the thorny issues of the HIV epidemic, uh, thorny moral issues, if you like, thorny criminal issues. And on all those fronts, I think that we are seeing uh, a recession. In fact, you know, just a few minutes ago, I was reading that the report due to be released by Médecins Sans Frontières uh, tomorrow uh, that points to the consequences of declining the first time for two decades, I think, that there is a, de- is a decline in funding for HIV. So, you know, activism is as necessary as it ever was, and the reasons why activism is necessary have not changed, and that is simply this, that there are still very, very many people dying of AIDS in the world. There are many people dying of AIDS in my country, South Africa. There are still many people living and being newly infected 
with HIV. Uh, uh, that is what we have to continue to confront. The same passion that drove us in the early days of the AIDS epidemic with building political commitment is needed now to sustain it. In the past, in our recent conversation in South Africa, uh, you talked about the difficulty of sustaining high levels of mobilization of civil society to maintain a state of constant war battle readiness, that that's an exhausting prospect, that there is this recession in funding. You also talked about, over time, the hazards of co-op, of civil society becoming co-opted into structures of power. Say a bit more about the latter point. In the early days of the HIV epidemic, at the forefront of activism was people living with HIV. And people fought because their lives depended upon whether we won or whether we lost the struggle. Uh, and that explained a lot of the energy, a lot of the cohesion, a lot of the passion. The irony today is that you know people who are informed and who are activists, many of those people are able to reap the fruits of, of the struggles that we waged because we know how to get treatment and, and we can work the health system. But people who have been left behind are the unorganized, are the most vulnerable, and often the people who are most difficult to organize because of their life choices, uh, because of their position in the society, and so on and so on. So, so you know, I think it's incumbent on us to, 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 to re-mobilize, uh, particularly given the, you know, the, the, the slogan of the Sustainable Development Goals Nobody left behind, I think it is. No one left behind. Well, it is the most vulnerable who are being left behind in relation to HIV. On the question of, of co-option, and again, this is another you know, irony, the, the kind of victims of our own success syndrome, is that in the, you know, the 1990s, the, the early 2000s, we pushed as civil society and as activists to be part of the processes for decision-making, the slogan, uh, greater involvement of people living with HIV, you know, nothing about us without us, all of those, those slogans. And we banged on the doors, and the doors opened, and activism and civil society was drawn into the centers of decision-making. But there was a sting in that tale, because what I've seen, and I know from my own experience, is that activists can be lulled with uh, frequent air travel, with staying in nice hotels, with per diems, with being talked very nicely to by politicians and people with power, uh, and then they become complicit in, in inaction uh, and end up as defenders of, of inaction. And they also become separated. And it goes back to the point I was making 30 seconds ago. They become separated from the community that we are there uh, as representatives of. And I do think... But that is, is one of the big problems that activism faces in 2019 and 2020. It's a very powerful point you just made about how the epidemic itself has changed and those left behind are those who now need to be defended and mobilized as part of an activist strategy, and that's difficult. The field of struggle itself, it seems to me, has broadened significantly. And then it's certainly in, yeah. in the South African context, the continued struggle over racial equity and racial social justice, the 
struggle, the very overt struggle with xenophobia and gender violence against women, the debate over access to education, housing, employment. What does that imply? What are the consequences of that broad reality for an HIV movement within South Africa? I think you've summed it up very well. Now, when we started the struggle in South Africa, there was not one person with access to antiretroviral treatment. Today, largely as a result of our efforts, there are four and a half million people with access to antiretroviral treatment. We've, we've revolutionized the response. But, but with the, the changes, bringing in new issues. So, you know, one of the issues that we have to confront now is the strength of the health system as a whole. Uh, you know, if you're providing medicines to four and a half million people on a daily basis, if you're needing to provide counseling and care and treatment of opportunistic infections, if you're having to deal with that along with the epidemic, concurrent epidemics and non-communicable diseases, if you don't have a strong public health care system, publicly funded, publicly managed, not-for-profit health care system, then you, you can't meet those objectives. And that is, I think, what we have run into uh, in South Africa, because a lot of the time that the Treatment Action Campaign spends today in its activism and organizations like Section 27 is around the strength of the healthcare system as a whole. But the healthcare system as a whole is a much more amorphous thing for activism to deal with. It has so many entry points, so many you know, determinants of success and, and, and failure. And it's so much more difficult to see the fruits of success of social mobilization. And that, that wearies our activist organizations. Yes. But then, as you correctly said, you know, in, in, in my country, in South Africa, we're 25 years after winning freedom, very, very, very important milestone. It took 350 years to get there. Uh, but after 25 years, people are asking why is it that race, black race, is still a marker of disadvantage, profound marker of disadvantage in terms of access to education, access to employment, access to basic safety and security in, in life. And, 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 you know, HIV uh, has become, HIV is both tied to every single one of those perpetuated inequalities, but is also driven by those inequalities. But then as much as it's driven by those inequalities, uh, the fact that people insist correctly, we have a right to a quality education, we have a right to quality housing, means that we now have many colliding issues that require urgent attention. Whereas, you know, when I started as an activist, the same year that we got freedom in South Africa, Yes, there was a big legacy of discrimination to be to be sorted out, but there was more patience, there was more trust, and we were able to put HIV at the top of the pool. Well, we had to fight for it, but after a long fight, we were able to get HIV to the top of the political agenda for half, almost a decade, and that is that is gone. Do you think that today, under the leadership of President Cyril Ramaphosa and the appointments that have happened, do you see hope that we can see some renewed top-level leadership in revitalizing the HIV agenda? Do I have to give you an honest response? Yes, please. 
I, I don't have cause for hope at the moment. You know, in our country, we're going through a lot of turmoil. We're dealing with attempts to unravel corruption and the consequences of corruption. Our president, we have a deep economic recession. We have 60% youth unemployment. And we have a president who is under siege in many ways. If he was a little bit more far-sighted, he would pay more attention to HIV because, as I've just explained, HIV connects to so many of these these factors. But I, he will say the right thing from time to time, but I don't believe that he's sending a strong enough signal throughout the whole of his government that they cannot let go of the response to HIV and to tuberculosis. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. happy. And the, the deputy president who is in charge of the HIV response is a man deeply mired in allegations of uh, corruption and cronyism and lacks the moral authority to provide leadership on HIV. So we're getting back to this question of just how precarious the current situation is internally with respect to HIV as well as broader social stability and the risk of regression of HIV AIDS. What's your thoughts now on the strategy that civil society should pursue, given everything that we just talked about? Well, civil society has to, it has a big challenge and the challenge seems almost impossible, but it's not impossible because we've overcome impossibilities before. Uh, It is to both maintain a very strong focus and spotlight on HIV uh, and to re-wing public support and imagination around HIV, but also to build alliances and coalitions with organizations that are fighting on the other issues and to make it clear that these dots all join up and that we have to find ways to, to work together. Um, it's difficult, Steve, to do that because organizations like the Treatment Action Campaign are struggling for funding in terms of declining uh, donor funding. You know, activists are, are tired. I mean, I, I just had a meeting this morning with the General Secretary and the National Chairperson of the Treatment Action Campaign. And, you know, some of us have, have been at this for 25, 20, 15 years. It's a long struggle. So people are going to need help to, to reimagine, to, to, be, you know, to keep that fire burning. Is that part of what your strategy is in your new role in, in editing the Maverick Citizen? Yeah, it's part of my new strategy because I now you know, edit, a, as, you, as you said, an activist uh, online uh, uh, news platform. And I'm trying to report and give oxygen to a whole diversity of civil society struggles, but also to to encourage people to see their own power and see their own uh, victories uh, and achievements, because it's very often, it's very difficult sometimes when you work at the coalface all of the time to, to, you know, to see what you've achieved and how important your your role is within society. So that is part of my strategy, but but it needs much more than that. You know, what I'm saying to you, what I'm saying to listeners is that, you know, people almost need to to nurture, to to cuddle, to comfort, to inspire, uh, lift up 
activist movements again to, to you know to help breed confidence and self belief uh, back into in, into activists because it's been a hard struggle. You know, with with HIV, there are new generations, there are younger people uh, coming forward. But as I said, I think it's we're in a quite a different world in 2019, 20 to where we were. You know, in the United States, when people picked up this baton in the 1980s, or when we picked it up in the late 1990s and 2000s in in Africa, uh, it's a different space, and that different space makes the response more challenging. I feel certainly. Yes, and I wish you the best uh, in your new endeavors with the Maverick Citizen. I think simply exploring how is it online to connect with this next generation, this new generation of maverick citizens, of activists. It's a central question, I think. Here, certainly, we're looking at that same set of concerns within our own society. Um, Can I just shift, get your views on the role of, the value and role of the International AIDS Conferences? Of course, the 2000 conference in Durban was a monumentally important moment, as was the Toronto one, in 2006, and we've had the Durban conference in 2016. Can you say a bit about what it is about these gatherings and the value, historically, the value that they have acquired in civil society groups moving things forward? Yeah, they have been enormously valuable. You know, the first international AIDS conference I attended was 1998 in Geneva. You know, that inspired my Activism it links me up with a bunch of people who I continue to work with right through to today. Uh, I came late into the AIDS struggle. There were people who've been, you know, part of the AIDS international AIDS conferences going back through Vancouver in 1996 and even before that. You know, these were the 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 the, the forums where where people, particularly from civil society came together and were able to discover common interests. Uh, there were also the places where relations were built between civil society and activists uh, and the scientific community, mutually beneficial relationships. There were conferences where governments and the United Nations were forced to account and embarrassed if they didn't account, and where pharmaceutical companies were shamed, forced into changing their their policies. And you yourself mentioned, you know, for the response in developing countries, the international conference in Durban in 2000 was vital, not just for South Africa, but I believe for the developing countries as a whole. South Africa, 2006, Toronto was vital because that was the place where we made our government look so stupid and backward because of its embrace of AIDS denialism. But within months when we returned to South Africa, the situation began to change, literally. I mean, I, I came back from Toronto and I was, you know, a few weeks later meeting the, the deputy president of the country to discuss a peace deal. <laughs> uh, and that was the beginning of the change in South Africa. But I, ha- I have to be honest with you that I have questioned the value of the International AIDS Conference in the last five, six, slightly more, seven years. Uh, I think that sometimes real activism has been replaced with theater. I think that as the response lost its focus, the conferences lost their focus. Um, I stopped going to them 
Uh, the last one I went to was in uh, Vienna in 2012, I think it was, possibly even 2010. So these days, I, I, I'm not saying it shouldn't happen. I think it should. But I think that people who attend these conferences need to self-reflect about why they're going and what they intend to get out of the conferences, not just for themselves, but for the necessary response to HIV and TB. I think that we may have a new opportunity in 2020 because I think people are seeing flashing red lights, but people have been seeing flashing red lights for, for a number of years. So it's hard to say more than that. I don't want to dismiss it and suggest it is not important, but I do want to say that anybody who goes to it should be very, very clear about what, why they are going and what needs to be done and that the opportunity that a conference like that presents to shift the agenda. Yes. Well, Mark, just on in response to some of the points you've made, at the Amsterdam conference in the summer of 2018, just more, slightly more than a year ago, yeah. one of the really striking things about that conference was the widespread disquiet that people were beginning to voice um, about the sustainability, about these issues of political and financial commitment, about the uh, disquiet that comes from understanding that there are large, there are epidemics in in different countries and geographies that we haven't paid sufficient attention to. That when we look at the investments made, they've had historic gains, but there's still this enormous outstanding work, and we're dealing with a new generation coming forward. So I do believe that when I came away from there and wrote about this, I felt that there was a sea change underway and that the gathering itself had become the the vehicle for that in part. I mean, yeah. obviously, the thinking was emanating from many different sources. I also think in coming back to the United States, while there's controversy surrounding the fact that we have a Trump administration that has politicized uh, a very inhumane form of migration policy that is highly controversial and makes people very hesitant. We also are very, it, this is a very prime moment in the sense that there is a new debate going on within the United States about our own uh, stagnant uh, response to our domestic epidemic. Uh, and there's renewed interest and, and effort at trying to understand that and figure out how to re-engage those communities which uh, tend to be very marginalized and people of color and very much focused within urban, peri-urban, southern contexts and people like you've described in South Africa left behind. And moreover, we're at a moment of very big debate here within this country about the value of foreign aid and, and the abandonment of liberal internationalism, well, you know, two out of every three dollars going towards, of donor dollars going towards HIV are coming still from the United States. And if there's a whole question coming around the, from populist nationalist angles around the value of that foreign aid, there's a need to reaffirm that and to have that come forward in a broader international context. So I take your point. Uh, I think there are many people who also question that point, and I, I think there's also 
quite an interesting debate coming forward, and we'll see where, where that lands. May I ask you, just in closing, to talk a bit about where you see hope, because I don't want this conversation to end on... <laughs> and this is a very realistic and very insightful conversation, and I thank you for it, but I don't want us to end on a, on a dark note. I'd like you to tell us where you see hope, because I know you do see hope. You wouldn't be doing what you're doing today if you did not. Before I get to that, let me just make one last comment, come back on the question of the, the AIDS conference yes. and the San Francisco AIDS conference in particular. I, I agree with what you've just said. I wasn't in Amsterdam, the reason for that given, but I did pick up that stirring. And from a distance, I tried to <laughs> uh, make sure there was some stirring, questioning of what was going on. You know, I always measure these conferences as I measure everything by are they felt at the community level? Um, how, you know, how do they make themselves felt? If they shift policy, shift funding, result in certain strong messages, result in statements made by politicians or pharmaceutical companies that people can hold people to account to when they get back home. That's value. So, so you, have to, you have to say, well, what can we get out of this that we can use as a stick, that we can wield, that we can create accountability from? So you're absolutely right. And what I would say about this 2020 conference is it is a decisive moment. And I know there's been an argument, even amongst activists, about whether it should take place in the United States because of President Trump. And, you know, just thinking as I listen to you now, I think it absolutely should, because I don't think it would hurt anybody. I certainly wouldn't hurt the Trump administration to take the AIDS conference away from San Francisco. Actually, we have to be back in countries like the United States, engaging with ordinary people, with the media, with politicians, making ourselves felt, rather than retreating into safe echo chambers where we know that we're amongst like-minded uh, uh, people. Um, so I just wanted to, <laughs> to make that one point. As far as where there is hope, don't get me wrong with what I've been saying. I'm just a very sober-minded person, and I prefer to call out, call attention to the difficulties uh, than smooth over things. Um, and I do think that complacency kills, and I do think that co-option debilitates people. But every day I see around me in South Africa, as well as internationally, individuals who inspire me with their creativity, with their compassion, with their ideas, uh, with their energies. Um, HIV more than ever before has to be linked to and become a reason for a different type of world, which is, is fairer and more open and less discriminatory based upon fairer health systems, better education systems. And I believe that we can mobilize around that. And again, every day in the work that I'm now doing with the Daily Maverick, with the Maverick Citizen, which is causing me to kind of peep into work that people are doing around environmental issues or education or poverty or other things, 
reminds me time and time again that the people who have the power to fix the world are these people and that HIV is one of our great, great, great success stories for human rights. It was the first great success story for human rights of the 21st century. The challenge is, can we keep it that way? I believe that we can, but I'm, I'm saying we can only do that if we face squarely up to a difficult reality that we, that we confront at this moment. Mark, thank you so much for that closing thought and for taking time today to be with us. Thank you, and I want to wish you the best in your new endeavors with the Daily Maverick, the Maverick Citizen, and I hope we can come back to you again soon. Thank you, and and thanks for doing this. Thank you for listening to AIDS 2020. If you want to find out more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV-AIDS, go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page. For more discussions on global health issues, check out Take As Directed, a CSIS podcast that features deep dive interviews with leaders in the global health policy space. Listen and subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.